Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Happy... Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Samantha, how are you this week? I am um, great. Or I was great till I ate mac and cheese at a record pace moments before mm-hmm. we started recording this. I would like to give the people some good advice out there, and that is really to savor mac and cheese, to not eat it like you've never seen um, mac and cheese before and you're trying Mm -hmm. for the first time, like really, you know, go about this slowly because otherwise you will give yourself an asthma attack by being too full. Um, Not (laughs) speaking from experience moments ago. Speaking from literally five minutes ago, we had to actually delay this recording because Sam needed a moment to be horizontal, I suppose, from her mac and cheese. Yeah, well, that's how it's going for us right now. Mercury is in retrograde, so. (laughs) Sorry. That's also where we're at, and we're feeling it. I think we're feeling it. We're definitely feeling it. I think, you know what the thing is with Mercury and Retrograde that always gets me, though, is, like, I feel like sometimes with Mercury and Retrograde, like, I could feel, like, a little off or something feels a little, mm, and I'm like, well, it really must be that, and then I, like, lean into it a little too hard. I literally like, don't lean in, into anything harder than Mercury and Retrograde and PMS. Those <laughs> two. Those are my two scapegoats. They're so accurate, though. I genuinely, like... Our track record shows that that is legit. I'm just saying. Oh, you do. You honestly fare pretty well during Mercury and Retrograde. Yeah, I kind of have actually an interesting. I almost feel like it's opposite for me. But apparently this one is like affecting Geminis. And that's me. Nobody come for me. I know I'm a Gemini. Oh, man. Oh, man. I mean, as long as you're (laughs) not a Scorpio. Scorpio's just really. I I act like I know what I'm talking about when it comes to all of this. But I literally don't. My knowledge comes from TikTok and the amount of astrology and like psychic readings on my TikTok Mm. algorithm these days is Mm. a little concerning. It's become like my Bible. (laughs) But I will say one person in our life that is a thousand percent an expert in this field is our intern Janique. She is an astrology whiz and I feel like she's become like a go-to source of like very like fun and interesting like astrological stuff. Amazing. We have big news that we have posted on our social media but want to shout it out here and make sure everyone knows that we are having an event live and in person in the big apple in new york city and next month october 16th oh hell yeah so basically if you guys are in the tri-state area and you're around on october 16th 2 to 4 p.m head over to brooklyn we of course will have tickets for this by the way in our little descriptione but this event is going to be hopping and we mean hopping it's literally called pre-game and politics because you guessed it we are talking politics and we are also pre-gaming and you can really pre-game anything you know the world is your oyster on that so we'll leave that part open-ended for you but we have some great candidates that are going to be participating on a dope ass panel to be honest we have our former guest and apple of our eye Brittany ramos de barros ashmi seth kwanda francis and jennifer gutierrez so we have new york city council we've got new york city mayor but we also have two new york congressional candidates 
to boot on there which is gonna be really awesome and it is going to be moderated by our friend sky who is also known as the fashionable democrat and shout out to obviously sky like you said in politics new york also carla marie davis and the down ballot who are partnering with us for this event again it's gonna be october 16th saturday from two to four so go check out the link in our episode description we want to see you we want to meet you and we want to drink with you so cheers to that cheers (laughs) to that all right well let's introduce our guest we have a very exciting topic this week that another one we have yet to cover but is so crucial so important so imperative so pertinent all the things all the things definitely all the things and you guys may have seen our story last week we were asking like questions that you guys have about sex education in the united states and there's a reason for it and this guest is that exact reason the host of sex ed with db podcast db if you guys have been ever taught like a weird sex myth or sex ed myth by your high school football coach this is for you this is absolutely for you. Like this is shout out, dedicated to, thank you very much. So without further ado, here is DB. I'm Danielle, aka DB, DBez, whatever you want to call me, Dan, a lot of nicknames. <laughs> My friends are she, her, hers, and I am the creator, co-producer, uh, and host of the Sex Ed with DB podcast. We are a feminist podcast bringing you all the sex ed that you never got through unique and entertaining storytelling really aiming to center LGBTQ plus folks and BIPOC folks. We also recently are in the middle of production for a really fun scripted TikTok sex ed series called The Segs Ed Show, S-E-G-G-S. And that is a video series cracking open sex education for all. And, you know, the reasoning behind that is because sex educators are censored from saying the word sex on TikTok. And a lot of them will say segs. So we kind of did a a nod to that. I've seen that hundreds of times. Yes, it's kind of funny. Yeah, made an entire egg-based series around that. So, yeah, that's, that's all about the podcast. And your second question was about how I got into this. And yeah. I, I usually share a short story about me teaching abroad in Israel the year after I graduated from college. And I was teaching English there and I kind of had this wild run-in with a rabbi. Very strange, oh. yeah. We were on like a field trip basically in this very religious part of Jerusalem. It was a community called the Community of the Bells. And this rabbi was showing us the teaching cohort around and saying, this is my temple, these are my traditions. And he kind of offhandedly said that he had five daughters or six daughters, I can't remember at this point, a lot of, lot of daughters. And <laughs> at, oh my gosh. The, yeah, at the age you know, of 17 or 18, they would be married off by the matchmaker and they wouldn't learn about sex until their wedding night when they had it. And he just, he was like, oh yeah, and next let's talk about Hanukkah. And I was like, oh wait, what are you saying? Like, like excuse me, yeah. whiplash. Like that's Wait, absolute... that reminds me of the new Netflix show. Has anyone seen My, My Unorthodox Life? Oh, I haven't seen that one, but I've seen Unorthodox, which is a very yeah. good show. Um, well, My Unorthodox Life is like a new reality show about the CEO of like the modeling agency. And she came from like an Orthodox Jewish community and like her daughter, same thing, like got married super early and like they didn't know anything about sex till their, I mean, not even on their wedding night because they still weren't sure what to do. It's crazy. Yeah, really unacceptable, really wild. And so, you know, I was the only one in the room at the time. I was 21 and I like raised my hand and felt very bold in saying, you know, hey, what about what they want? What if they aren't Mm -hmm. ready to be mothers? What about, you know, they don't have access to online resources because they don't have internet. Like, what are they supposed to do? And he kind of just like waved me off and said, you know, this is how it goes. And so ever since that moment, I realized that, you know, not only am I interested in in this topic, but I want to make it kind of my life's work. And so that in conjunction with Trump becoming president in 2016, I was just like, I must do something. (laughs) And so the podcast was born in June of 2017. 
that is amazing wow. and classic you know trump just always has his ways of really pushing us to like do things so like blessing and a curse but i think he really mostly curse but he did he was the catalyst for i think a lot of people's you know new careers in life <laughs> exactly totally it's like okay well we got to do this now and to your point like sex education is so taboo and I think for us, like we had a really interesting conversation with a guest a few weeks ago and a representative from Louisiana and she was talking about sex education and she was trying to explain that the majority of the men in the legislature have no idea about like a woman's anatomy, A, and B was explaining literally like how guys didn't understand how like tampons worked and that most parents could also opt their kids out of sex education. So, so many kids in the population just genuinely have no idea how it works or it's abstinence only. And there just seems to be so much that goes into that in terms of that taboo and like the fact that like, oh my God, we can't talk about it. And then therefore we roll into this whole situation where everyone's just confused and we have men that are representing constituents that have no idea how a woman's body works or functions. So to like really just like pull that back a little bit, like that was kind of a ramble, but like why is this taboo? Like, why do we have this issue where it's like, okay, we can't talk about it, like, hush, hush. Really okay. important questions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a mini lecture prepared. Is, <laughs> Let's get into this, it. This is the bulk of my notes where it's like, it's a it's a page. It's, it's I got okay. some bullets, but I think that- I'm so excited. This is a really <laughs> complex question and it has totally. a really complex answer. So, you know, we'll, we'll get into it, but I think to start, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about abstinence only education, which I know you have some questions down the line, but you know, the history of that in our country, that is kind of one prong of my answer here. And then we're going to get into also a brief uh, history of government and society at large policing women's bodies, right? So that's right. like the two pronged approach, in particular, black indigenous women of color. So I think like, mm -hmm. that's where I want to start. First, ab only. So according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is an incredible resource for sex education, highly recommend uh, listeners to to check that. So since 1996, more than $2 billion in federal funding have been spent on programs for young people that focus on promoting sexual abstinence outside of marriage, aka abstinence only. So yeah, federal yeah. funding for these programs really ramped up and accelerated under George W. Bush in, during that administration. Then it dropped significantly while President Obama was in office and then rose again when Trump was in office. So this normalization of ab-only programs absolutely contributed you know, to the topic of sex being seen as taboo. So that's kind mm -hmm. of one one piece of this, yeah. right? Now I really want to talk about policing young women's bodies for a bit, just because in one of my classes in my master's program in May of 2020, I graduated with my master's of public health from Columbia. And in one of our theory classes, we read a few chapters from a book called Dangerous Passage, The Social Control of Sexualities in Women's Adolescence. And so in that excerpt, we learned about how in the 70s and the 80s, when Reagan was in office in particular, the government and society writ large was really controlling women in micro and macro ways. So for yeah. instance, there were a few campaigns, right? One was to rage the age of consent, which arguably that's a good thing, but that's kind of one example. Eliminating prostitution, ending white slavery, AKA sex trafficking, but specifically for white people, combating venereal disease, like all of these things began to ramp up. And then there are also simultaneously campaigns against teen pregnancy, right? So this idea that pregnancy makes sex visible and mm -hmm. like in this non-marital totally. sexual way. And so this is a sin, right? This is related yeah. to religion. And that was very much entrenched um, in societal values during that time, right? So this was seen as like an attack on nice white family values. And so this was seen, you know, as our problem as white people, white middle-class women are getting pregnant outside of wedlock. And, you know, in terms of black people, black women in particular, poor women who are getting pregnant, that was someone else's problem. Like the government didn't really care to, to, you know, figure out how to get black women, the birth control that they needed in order yeah. for their reproductive health. That was just like, oh, we don't want to talk about that. Yeah. that that's more sinful than white women getting oh, pregnant yeah. since we demonize mm. black women's bodies and reproductive journeys and so with mm. this hysteria about teen pregnancy birth control becomes a thing but only because 
people in the medical community were experimenting on women of color, specifically Puerto Rican women, obviously highly unethical. And there's a really large history throughout the 1900s and even like today in some other capacities in microwaves, black women throughout the 1900s were being mass sterilized against their will. So I think like oh all of this comes together to say like the taboo of sex and sex ed in America is deeply, deeply tied to racism, sexism, yeah. classism, religion, and the mm. history, right, of old, white, straight, cis men in government, mm. in family structures, in positions of power, making decisions about what people of other genders should be doing with their lives and with their bodies. So I think like the question of like, why is sex so taboo? You can't really answer that without no. going into our history and without understanding totally how this has come to be because it's not an accident this is all very intentional and so i think that it's super important when we're talking about this to talk about who really is getting the the short stick when it comes to this like white women especially you know we'll talk about maybe briefly abortion and you know yeah. all the things going on in texas and many other states white women who are of middle class, like we'll always be able to get abortions, but totally. those kinds of laws and policies always mostly negatively have the worst negative impact effects for women of color and uh, people with vulvas of color. So mm. lots to d discuss there, but had yeah. to give that, you know, history. Oh my God, it's such a loaded lesson. question. Like yeah. it's crazy. I mean, it goes back human history through religion and just the building of this white supremacy and patriarchy that we still live in today. But yeah, centuries old for sure that just ultimately has led us here. But moving on, like what's what through your work has been like some of the most surprising stuff you've learned and like any patterns, like specific things that have just kind of been a little bit mind blowing for you? Yeah, I think like the amount of shame and misinformation specifically that there is about masturbation has been mm. wild to me like we get dms really? like pretty much every other day just about people so scared that they are going to hell that they are their penis is going to fall off that they are oh doing a bad thing that they are unhealthy because they are giving themselves pleasure and you know i when i when i was teaching like sex ed in school and when i was a kid you would always hear about these crazy rumors or myths about you know oh the worst you're gonna go blind if you masturbate too much you're gonna go grow <laughs> oh hair God, on yeah. your palms but like it's so sad like the real questions that we get from people who are some are teenagers and some are young but some are adults who are yeah. in other countries whether again it has to do with their religion or their culture or whoever is telling them that masturbation is sinful and unhealthy, that is so not true. And most people have a very healthy relationship to masturbation. Mm -hmm. And so I think that has been a really surprising experience for sure. I bet, oh my God, can't even imagine. That is also but... like, what a DM situation. Oh yeah. my gosh, yeah. that is- Pretty brave. Yeah, for people to totally. message that. I yeah, totally. I love that, and I love that for all of them specifically that they're like, no, like this. I feel like this is wrong within me, and for whatever reason, I've been taught this. But like, I'm gonna question it, and I'm gonna mm -hmm. see what other people think about this, and see if I can get some answers. Like, I think that yeah. approach mentality, phenomenal. Love and like, it. I I definitely take some inspiration from that, and like, I hope everyone does as well because that's really brave and really awesome. And obviously, mm -hmm. you guys are helping to you know get them some answers, but just the fact that they're questioning it. Love to see it. In a democracy, we all have citizen power. We just need to know how to use it. Yet, if you feel fed up or confused by the U.S. government, you're not alone. Most voters feel powerless, especially when lobbyists and special interest groups seem to control the levers of government more so than the people. But your voice and your vote matter. When you understand how the government actually works, you can have a surprising amount of influence. Citizen Power with Natalia Ramos and Ben Sheehan is a 10-day course, signed for free, here, aka in that link in our bio, that offers the civics education you missed or you may have forgotten from high school. This is not just about facts and dates. It's about giving you back your power as a citizen to move forward the issues you really care about. By taking this course, you'll learn what should be taught in civics class, but isn't, your rights and powers as a citizen, how you can have the most influence over your elected representatives, 
real actionable steps you can take to influence policy, and the confidence and conviction to contribute to the future of democracy. You are the CEO of your elected officials, and it's time to make sure your voice is heard. So head to the link in our episode description to start your amazing civics class today and get the first five days free. Again, head to that link in our episode description and get five days free. All right, guys, do you need stress relief, sleep support, recovery, mood boosters, or even some new incredible skincare? Prima has amazing, doctor-formulated, clinically validated, and high-performance CBD products for the skin, the body, and the mind, you guys, and it comes in so many forms. So we have CBD supplements to bath bombs, body lotions, skincare. I've gotten some serious relief from stress, hangovers, anxiety, even PMS with this stuff. So give it a shot. Prima has recently been selected as one of Sephora's top 10 brands that meet their rigorous clean standards by priding themselves on sustainable farming practices, being carbon neutral, 100% clean with strict safety standards, which is all so, so important to us. So there's also some big news because Prima has launched an app that offers self-care in the palm of your hands and allows you to shop with ease access exclusive content, and much more. So lucky for us, you can enjoy the relief of the best CBD products out there because Prima is offering our listeners an exclusive, limited time, 20% off offer with the code GIRLGOV. So head to Prima.co, feel better every day. But speaking of some more questions, we want to get into our I have a stupid question but segment. And to start things off, let's start like basics af like what is sex education i know we're talking about it but like what does that really mean yeah we're back in the truck up i love it so (laughs) advocates for youth is an incredible sexual health organization for young people highly recommend that people check it out it's a group that works to advance sex education and i would love to read their definition of comprehensive sex education because i think it'll put things really in perspective for us so It's a planned sequential K through 12 curriculum that's part of a comprehensive school health education approach that approaches age appropriate, physical, mental, emotional, and social dimensions of human sexuality. So it should be inclusive, medically accurate, and culturally responsive. So I think that's like a good definition of it, but you might be wondering, okay, what what does the content look like though? And so for me and for the work that I do, these are kind of, you know, many topics, not a complete list by any means, but I think comprehensive Mm -hmm. sex ed includes pleasure, healthy relationships, communication, consent, recognizing and preventing sexual violence, gender identity, sexual orientation, LGBTQ plus health and history, sexual rights, abortion, sex and disability, mental health, contraception, porn literacy, online safety, and a lot, lot more, right? So this is just kind of the beginning obviously there's anatomy there's other kinds of periods there's basic kind of education but beyond the the basic stuff i think that is a pretty good definition and list of what uh comprehensive sex ed should include totally well moving on to our next question what does it mean to be sex positive i think a lot of people have different definitions for what sex positivity means i think in you know, the the fat positivity or fat neutrality movement that could look a lot different from what it means to be sex positive when it comes to queer sex or relationships mm-hmm. or to be, you know, feel empowered by your body and mind. And, you know, there's like a million ways you could take it. But for me, when yeah. I read this question, for me, I think it's being proactive instead of reactive, right? So mm-hmm. it's like, instead of shaming and saying, and like negating or saying the negative of what you're teaching, it means making sure people have all of the information they need and they feel truly empowered in their health, sexuality, and pleasure. So I think, for example, a lot of the ways that we deem what a successful health program is, in quotes, is like the lack of STIs or the lack of teen pregnancy, when reality it should be how many people feel like they're in positive relationships with other partners and with themselves, how many people you know, had pleasure the last time that they had sex. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways to measure the positive of health education. Yeah. So I think that's part of what being sex positive means for me. Totally. That's a good point. Yeah. I feel like that's also just something that's like so left out of it. It's like, okay, what are the the emotional and mental elements of sex yeah. education? I feel like that's, I mean, we'll get into this even further of like kind of like our own experiences, but 
let me tell you, like, even in New Jersey, that was, like, not a part of the equation. And, like, New Jersey's pretty, like, liberal state as this stuff goes. And, oh, my God, not even remotely a part of it. Granted, I'm old now, so maybe it's a little different. I'll have to look into yeah. it. But <laughs> It could so. be. It could be the same, though. It's very possible it's the same. Oh, the way how slowly everything moves, I would put money on it. Not, like, a lot. Like, not my life savings, but, like, enough to, like, not be able to eat Chipotle for, like, a few weeks. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like that a kind solid- of level. A solid 1K. You'd be like, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty positive. <laughs> exactly. The perfect bet. But I know we were also talking about this a little bit earlier, but just to get like a little bit of like a clear, like a distinct definition, what exactly is abstinence only education? Like, is that like, okay, like, no, like you're not allowed to have sex. Like, what is that? What does that even mean? Yeah. So I think like these programs really vary but in essence they teach you not to do things right they teach you not to have sex not to masturbate not to do drugs etc right without any information and in fact there's Mm -hmm. a lot of shaming misinformation and lack of agency when it comes to what students bring up and feel and experience in abstinence only curriculum and i was reading an article about abstinence only education in the journal of adolescent health And to quote them, abstinence-only programs as defined by U.S. federal funding requirements inherently withhold information about human sexuality and may provide medically inaccurate and stigmatizing information. Thus, those kinds of programs threaten fundamental human rights to health information and life. So, you know, these kinds of programs can look really different, but often some of the stories that I've heard at least is, you know, they tell you don't do it. You'll, you know, if it's a religious kind of school, maybe there's sin or hell attached to it. I've seen exercises where, you know, they have a wrapped present and they unwrap the present and say, look, can you ever you know, make that paper as it was again. No, that's what happens Mm. when you lose your virginity. Like a lot of shaming, a lot of, you know, here's a piece of gum, let me chew the gum. Is the gum ever gonna be the same again? I don't know if you've seen Jane the Virgin, but a fantastic show. In the first episode, they kind of like do an ode to this when the grandma shows Jane a flower and is like, isn't this, you know, beautiful flower? She crumples it. This is what happens after you lose your virginity. It's it's extremely painful to watch and to know Mm -hmm. that that is happening to youth around the world and around the country and in our own communities. And so, yeah, it's it's horrific, I would say. Yeah, totally. Well, moving on to like, what is consent? And also, how does that play into this like sex education conversation? Yeah, consent is so uh, critical at every age. I think talk about age appropriate sex education for K through 12. There is something to be said about consent at every age. And so when we're talking Mm -hmm. specifically about sexual consent, though, that we teach, you know, maybe seventh or eighth graders, definitely we teach it in high school. Sexual consent is an agreement to participate in a sexual activity with someone else or multiple people. But I really like Planned Parenthood's definition of uh, consent with their FRIES acronym. So what FRIES means is freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific. Mm -hmm. And so I really like that there are those guidelines and, you know, consent isn't always clear cut. It sometimes Mm -hmm. is messy and really depends on your relationship, power dynamics. There are definitely a lot of things that come into play and that can be really challenging. But I do think that the key with consent is communication, trust, and all people involved feeling empowered and in the know about their decisions and choices when it comes to what kinds of sexual activities they're participating in. Totally. Those guidelines are huge. Like, I think the traditional idea of consent is like, yes or no, once you get the yes, it's free for all, do what you want. But it is reversible. It also should be enthusiastic the entire time. So I think like those guidelines are huge in making like those specific points about it, especially Mm -hmm. with young people when teaching consent. Um, Yeah. I also just want to make the caveat that there are some folks who feel like, oh, maybe I gave consent in the moment and then afterwards I'm feeling regretful. And I just want to share that that is extremely, not extremely common, but definitely common. Like many people have had that experience before and I don't want people to feel like they're alone if that's something that they've experienced. But in the moment, if you have any doubt, and you feel comfortable voicing that doubt, which you should, then your partner needs to stop whatever they're doing in order to make Mm -hmm. you feel comfortable. 
100%. Yes, totally agree. Well, we actually had some questions pop in from Instagram today, if you're up for it. Sure. But to start, we had someone ask, does the federal government or individual states regulate sex ed in schools? And we're about to get into the political conversation here in a second, but... Yeah, it's a really important question. So the answer really here is that it's kind of both, but it's mainly the answer is the states. So there is abstinence only federal funding, right, which comes from the federal government. And there's also a national organization called SECUS, which is Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. And they have recommendations that states should adopt. But when it comes down to it, states are in charge of implementing the kind of sexual health guidance and requirements for their actual state. Gotcha. Okay. Next one is how can we change sex ed policies? What policies should we look for when voting? Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm actually, I wish that I were more involved in policy change. I'm more Mm -hmm. on the education in the education sphere when it comes to sex ed. But I think that when it comes to policy change, you should really look what your local and state government has when it comes to what's happening in schools and start there. Because especially with local government, you can really see, okay, what's happening in my school district? You know, maybe approach some principals or teachers, see their experiences, try to get an understanding for what is required for that school district and who are your local representatives who would be able Mm -hmm. to to change that for the better yes such a good answer we always are like (laughs) every time we're like local state government we always are pushing that yes it's just it it's like the most important thing and it's the thing that no one talks about so combined with sex education i mean you got (laughs) a pyramid in heaven here but in terms of some of the policy that does exist that like i think swings over into the education element of this whole thing is kind of back to this absence only education element and 37 states are charged with pushing this type of education which just blows my mind on so many levels like I don't wouldn't even know where to start besides like they're just like things going off my head like what the fuck what the fuck what the fuck but like what does that actually look like in reality like if I'm a student I walk in the door I'm like oh my gosh I'm my little like fifth grade I'm assuming that's like you know, great. What does that look like? Like, is there a program for it? Yeah. So pretty wild. I mean, just to answer your question that you had written before about like whether or not it's like effective or not, the answer is it is ineffective and studies have shown this. What it looks like in reality is, as I mentioned before, you know, it's shaming students. It's giving misinformation Fifth grade is a little young. Usually sex ed will start in middle school, like typically in like seventh or eighth grade. Although again, it should be K through 12, but it really looks like not acknowledging that students are or will be sexual beings who deserve the right to pleasure centered, medically accurate, age appropriate information. And just to share what some studies have shown because we're doing an episode, our fourth episode of the Sex Ed Show, which you can tune in on on TikTok. You know, studies, we're doing an episode on abstinence-only sex ed and how it doesn't work. And studies show that abstinence-only does not cause young people to delay having sex for the first time. Young people who pledge abstinence are less likely to use contraceptives when they do have sex. And states with abstinence-only curriculum have higher rates of both teen pregnancy and STIs. And again, that's not to shame folks, but that's to show that if you're someone who does not want to be pregnant as a teen and does not want an STI, if you can help it, then you aren't prepped with the tools or the information or the resources if you are a student in abstinence-only education. Totally. And I think that's like the perfect segue into our next question, which is about teen pregnancy, because I feel like that's so much of the time the conversation about sex education is related to teen pregnancy. Like, I feel like it's always the comparison. And it's not the only issue, though. Like, it it creates so many other issues and is deeper than that. So, like, can you shed some light on some of the other issues that this type of education creates? Is your question just asking kind of, like, if folks only focus on teen pregnancy, what are they missing? Yeah. So much. Oh my gosh. I mean, think about it, like healthy relationships, uh, pleasure, anything to do with porn or online safety, sexting, communication, consent, periods, anatomy, mental health. There are just so many other 
parts of health. And again, like with the teen pregnancy stuff, it's so rooted in religion in like what white politicians were trying to curb in the seventies and uh, before that. And so I think that because a lot of federal funding has been dedicated to reducing teen pregnancy in America, a lot has been missed and continues mm-hmm. to be missed. Also with STIs, I think, of course, there was such an emphasis on HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. And that emphasis in terms of federal funding and state funding hasn't gone away. But <laughs> I understand why there's so much funding for decreasing teen pregnancy and decreasing STIs. However, so many things are missed right. when we're not focusing on every other aspect of sex education. Totally. And also, you know, talking about states too, eight states require any teaching on consent. What states are those, first of all? But also, like, has this been impactful in these states? Yeah. So actually, I checked Guttmacher this morning. And as of September 1st, 2021, nine states plus D.C. require mm, the importance okay. of consent. So we're moving <laughs> on up. There um, we go. So those states are California, Colorado, Delaware, Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, actually, Oregon, South Carolina, Washington, and D.C. I guess I wouldn't have taken that $1,000 bet because it seems like New Jersey is improving. No, damn it. You know, they had to do something right and totally throw my money to the wind, right? To the I know. I'm for it, though. Let's lose our money. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I had trouble finding studies specifically on the impact of this curricula in these states. I'm sure some of it is brand new and Some of it's a little more challenging to track, but we do know that teaching healthy sexual and non-sexual relationships, communication, recognizing and preventing sexual violence, consent and decision-making are integral to young people's healthy development. And so teaching about consent also, studies do show, is widely supported by parents and families across the U.S. And so that definitely should be the norm. It should be what we're aiming for for all 50 states plus D.C. I just wild. can't believe like how few states I just I can't but okay <laughs> that's fine 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 here's the other issue I mean there's so many but I'm just gonna like hit on another one and that's that states aren't required to actually send out like medically accurate information a lot of times like you could literally I don't even want to put a bad example out into the universe like well I'm gonna I, go over some myths so we're okay, gonna get yeah, into give me, it give me the myths give me like what are like Let's the get top ones Okay, so in terms of numbers, only 18 U.S. states require program content to be medically accurate. So that That's means fucking crazy. 32 states could just like have a teacher come up and say any of these myths that oh I'm about God. to say. Having sex will make you less valuable. Myth. Uh- you can't get pregnant while you're on your period. Myth. Masturbation uh- is bad for your health. Myth. Abortion increases risk of breast cancer, negatively impacts future fertility, or will cause long-term mental health problems. Myth. You can get pregnant from oral sex. Myth. (laughs) Emergency contraception is abortion. Myth. These are just all myths that I've heard before and have dispelled in my career. The oral sex one is really getting me. Kills me. That one. I actually think I remember being taught that too. Not great. Not great at all, I'd say. Mm -mm. Bad. I'm sorry, I need a moment to just put my jaw back from the floor. Moment of silence, yeah. I understand. But, oh <laughs> my God, that's insane that these are like myths there. It's like, okay, like I can literally be like, la la la, starting the lesson of the day, by the way. Like, that's like, that's the thesis. Yeah, I really don't, I'm sure there's some campaign out there to get all 50 states to make sure that they're giving medically accurate information, but on the other hand, there are so many powerful people in government who are religious who don't want that to be a law in their state. So I'm sure mm-hmm. there's a lot behind going on behind the scenes to make sure that's not happening. Totally. Yeah. It's also like, I mean, talking about the states, it's a little bit easier to like wrap your head around of like why certain states have these certain policies because we associate them and kind of know, okay, California is going to think like this. Mississippi is going to think like this. Like there's that. But there's even at the federal level funding that goes into sexual risk avoidance programs. At the federal level, how can we explain this is happening there too? Like 
Because and what, also, what are sexual risk avoidance programs? Is that the same as um, abstinence, abstinence only? Yeah, okay. it's kind of uh, synonymous, I would say. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I would just go back to that history lesson that I gave in the beginning, yeah. right? Of like, it's so embedded in our history and in our politics and during the Bush administration and the Trump administration, whoever is in power, like has the ability and especially, you know, depending on what the makeup of, you know, the house is, it really can sway like what right. bills are being passed federally, which is, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know, like the details of the politics with the bills with federal stuff. So I'm not the best person to ask about that. But I do know mm -hmm. that like Trump, for example, was responsible for implementing the, you know, the gag rule. And so I think- Can you explain to what that is for people who don't know? The global gag rule, AKA the Mexico City policy is the United States government policy that blocked US federal funding for non-governmental organizations that provided abortion counseling or referrals, advocated to decriminalize abortion or expand abortion services. So it's pretty much the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And it's really criminalizing people and organizations who want to provide comprehensive sexual health access to their patients. Totally. totally. And I think what's so interesting with that is usually like that gets thrown out when a more liberal president or administration comes in and then it gets reversed after it's like kind of a shoot what are those things called that we had as kids yo-yo oh my god I was like what is that I couldn't visualize it I was like what the hell is that literally haven't thought of a yo-yo in decades me neither <laughs> but it is like one of those things that's so interesting where like it has such a political entity to it and it's insane it's like it's people's bodies it's people's health it's people's futures and like we are just debating them in these kind of insane policies that I feel like are so extreme in terms of the pendulum. But speaking of which, let's talk about some of these Southern states. So seven Southern states either prohibit sex educators from discussing or even answering questions about LGBTQ identities and relationships or actually require sex educators to frame these identities and relationships negatively. Like why, well, the why is really, also nuance, but like how homophobia like, i just yeah, answered it i mean just right there but like how do we push us outside of this how do we change this because this is obviously horrible devastating needs to freaking go but like what do you like do you have anything you're like this is how we can kind of change this or like anything you've seen where you're like this could at least push us in the right direction yeah i really think it's a multi-layered approach that kind of needs all hands on deck so you mm. know the more we advocate for curricula that respects all people's experiences, identity, and relationships, the better, right? The more we have government representatives who are LGBTQ+, the better. The more we're able to present facts and studies to representatives and policymakers that show that positive representation of queer folks in schools and curricula is protective for queer youth, the better. So there are like all these things that we could be doing um, and should be doing as, you know, sex educators, as uh, citizens, as policymakers, in order to push uh, the queer agenda, as they say. It's it's just super important. There's it's it's really devastating when you look at studies and see that there are a lot of queer youth who don't feel like they belong in schools, and there are really studies that show that the more that young queer people feel like their teachers like know them and support them that there's a gay straight alliance in their school that they're being taught yeah. lgbtq plus history and health and that it's embedded in their curriculum and not just a one-off class like this mm -hmm. is protective for them and so i think that the more we can get in touch with that reality and, and keep pushing the better 100 percent, such good points well we want to kind of talk about some some decent sex education where we see that some comprehensive sex education we're going to give california a shout out because there's california healthy youth act can you kind of explain what this is and how it kind of does hit some of these boxes that are needed really across the board sure yeah so the california healthy youth act was enacted in january 1st of 2016 so 
a little over five years old now, five and a half years. And this law integrates the instruction of comprehensive sexual health education and HIV prevention education. And so there are five primary purposes to provide young people with the knowledge and skills necessary to protect their sexual and reproductive health from HIV and other STIs and from unintended pregnancy. Once again, that's like the first thing that's the most important, which is like, fine, we'll take it. To provide young people with the knowledge and skills they need to develop healthy attitudes concerning adolescent growth and development, body image, gender and sexual orientation, relationships, marriage and family, to promote understanding of sexuality as a normal part of human development. I really love that one. It feels like, let's just, everyone yeah. fucking does this, so it's fine. Everyone like, does it. <laughs> can we just, that's can, such can a good just, point. Like, it's just fine. And um, you'd think it'd be like a normal, like something you would duh. casually talk yeah. about. Everyone it's just does like it. like a duh. Two more, to ensure young people receive integrative, comprehensive, accurate, and unbiased sexual health and HIV prevention instruction and provide educators with clear tools and guidance to accomplish that end. I love this piece about providing educators with the tools and resources they need in order to teach this. It's super important. And then the last one is to provide young people with the knowledge and skills necessary to have healthy, positive, and safe relationships and behaviors. So could this be better? Yeah, sure. It's not perfect, but is it a really good start and a really great way for the 40 million people of California to have pride that, is that how many people are in California? <laughs> I think so. About 40 million people in California. Who for knows? Them to feel confident that that's what's happening in their schools, like that's great. So I think that it is a really excellent start. Totally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the fact, like the point that you said too, of the fact that giving educators the right tools and actually Huge. being able to like reference something. I don't know if this was for you guys too, but ours was taught by our gym teachers and no offense. Mine to was taught by the football teachers. coach, the same, football coach. Same. And it was like, cause they would do, you know, like, especially obviously teachers not paid enough. So it's like, okay, we're going to do like the 10 different jobs. And so it was very much that. And it's like no harm to them, but they were like given like a packet and it was like, follow the packet. Like, okay, like, I don't think there is enough training in that. There is not enough sensitivity, especially the personalities. Oh my God. Well, and imagine who you're teaching it to, like a bunch of immature high schoolers. Like you also kind of have to be prepared and get teaching on just that alone of how to cover this topic that, you know, I'm sure all of those kids were raised to have sex be so taboo. So how can we step into that classroom and have it be like a healthy space? That alone is, I think, is a hurdle. So, you know, there is so much training that, yeah, it does need to be there. I think that is such a good point. Totally. And I think it's possible. And I think we're in the right direction. And speaking of like going forward, what are like some of the pieces of legislation out there? Is there anything moving that like we should have an eye on in terms of sex education? Yes, I'm so glad you asked. So (laughs) there's a a Senate bill in New York State right now that has passed the Senate and has passed the Assembly that requires comprehensive sexuality instruction for students in grades K through 12, which is dope as hell. That includes (laughs) model curricula for comprehensive sexuality education and at a minimum conforms to the content and scope of national sexuality education standards by CECUS. And so highly recommend that people Google national sexuality education standards CECUS to find out more about what these entail. And all states should really push for these standards. There's so much research and so much data that really show that this is beneficial for our kids. So many parents in a recent, you know, in a recent study in the past five years, 93% of parents support comprehensive sexual health education in middle schools and 96% of parents support it in high schools. And so people want this. Everyone, kids want it, parents want it. Clearly New York State is following suit. And so I think that is the the next thing that we're hoping for and pushing for. Totally. Way to go, Nico. Well, I know. Yeah. Pretty good. Okay. Well, this has been amazing and very eye-opening and I think a topic that we've been wanting to cover for a while, but I think our listeners have also wanted to hear some more about. So we're so grateful for having you on. Thanks Before for having you go, me. can you kind of plug your podcast or any other just like resources that people can dive more into regarding this topic as well? Of course. Yeah. Please uh, follow us on Instagram at sex ed with DB podcast. Follow us on TikTok and Twitter at sex ed with DB. If you want to check us out 
on our website. We're www.sexedwithdb.com. And if you want to listen to us, listen to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And really, I hope you tune in to the Sex Ed Show on TikTok. We'll also be releasing it on YouTube and Reels and Twitter and Facebook. But just really, really excited for all of you who are listening, who are learning more about sexual health education. There's so much more to learn and so many other folks out there who are doing amazing work. So do a deep dive. Amazing. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Alrighty guys, top stories of the week. This is a big week in the political world and mostly because of this next story here, which is really about this kind of looming government shutdown and the drama around it. So let's let's get into it. Democrats are trying to pass a $3.5 trillion infrastructure and social programs bill. Nancy Pelosi said the next few days will be a time of intensity and she's correct. She might even be downplaying that a little bit. <laughs> So. I just feel like that is the most like lo- like PC way of being like it's hell on earth. Like, excuse me. 100%. Like, well, thin advantages in both chambers are making it challenging for Democrats, as it is not a large enough advantage for the Democrats to push anything forward at this moment. So, yikes! And basically, as the end of the fiscal year creeps closer, which is like ew, ew. Like I, how yeah, what? The end of like 2021. I can't. No, no, no. no. I don't want to talk about it. Mm-mm. We're just not going to, no, we're not acknowledging that. But basically what we will acknowledge is like the situation. And if they don't come up with a solidified solution, it can cause a government shutdown, which dear God, why is this always freaking happening? We're going to have to every get year. every year. I'm like, I can't. Because we've, we just keep getting more and more divided every year and then it makes it possible to pass anything. So according to El Presidente, no, I'm not talking about the dude from Barstool. I'm talking about Biden. He said the following on this whole situation. We've got three things to do. The debt ceiling, the continuing resolution, and two pieces of legislation. If we do that, the country is going to be in great shape. Honestly, I have not seen America at the gym recently working out, so I don't really know if I agree with that statement. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that statement either. We'll see. Always fingers crossed. Always hopeful, right? Always hopeful. Positive vibes. (laughs) Positive auras. Basically, so kind of an explainer too. Every year, the fiscal year for the government starts on October 1st and ends on September 30th. So with September 30th being two days when we're recording this, this is Tuesday, but for you, it'll be one day. I know. Am I? Okay. Yeah. One day. (laughs) When you're listening to this, if it is Wednesday, September 29th, one day. And so the race to come to an agreement on the budget and spending is imperative. And so... For an explanation on that, the House last week passed a measure to keep the government open and to eliminate the debt limit by a party line vote of 220 to 211. The Senate was supposed to have a procedural vote on the bill, but Republicans were expected to block it after Mitch McConnell said his members would not assist in raising the debt limit. The only way McConnell and Republicans would support it is if Democrats separated government funding from the debt limit. The stopgap. Spending legislation includes bipartisan priorities, including $28.6 billion in disaster relief for Hurricane Ida and other extreme weather events, and $6.3 billion to support Afghanistan evacuees after the end of the 20-year war. But within this, some verbiage that might be like, what the fuck is the debt limit? So according to the U.S. Department of Treasury... I don't know why I'm using a British accent to talk about that something. That was pretty good. Super American. Thank you. Oh, my God. Decent. Anyways, back to the debt limit. The debt limit is the total amount of money that the United States government is authorized to borrow to meet its existing legal obligations, including Social Security and Medicare benefits, military salaries, interest on the national debt, tax refunds. I love those. And other payments. So... The USA has never defaulted on the debt limit in the modern era, like literally ever, which like would be a huge issue if it did. And in the past, both parties have stepped in to stop this from happening. And Democrats joined the then Republican Senate majority in doing so several times during Trump's presidency, including a suspension of the debt limit that expired in August. But now that Democrats have unified control of Washington, McConnell has ruled out returning the favor. (laughs) Classic. Classic. 
McConnell blamed the $3.5 trillion tax spending bill and other Democratic agendas for the reason the debt limit should increase. But this is false, as the debt limit increasing would help the past, not future spending, including the Republicans' $1.5 trillion deficit finance tax overhaul that, that Trump signed into law in 2017 and additional trillions in coronavirus relief that was passed with GOP support. So basically, they're assuming that raising the debt limit is for this $3.5 trillion tax spending bill that they are against. But in reality, there is still a lot of past spending that we need to cover with raising this debt limit. Well, we've got nothing new about Mitch McConnell clearly from this behavior, but what we have recently learned is that his uh, zodiac sign is Aquarius. So do with that information what you will what you want it's but very astrology heavy episode it really is it really you know mercury hits retrograde and we're like let's talk about the stars let's talk about it but also just for this week there is a lot going on with the government shutdown looming the questions about what's going on in congress right now feel free to dm us any questions you have and we will also give more updates next week when when they happen but yeah. Yeah. We shall move on to our next story, which is that top generals are contradicting Biden saying they advise leaving 2500 troops in Afghanistan. So there's some drama happening that just broke today when we recorded this mm-hmm. and top military officials told lawmakers on Tuesday that they advised leaving troops in Afghanistan contrary to what President Biden did. So General Frank McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command, and General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, each acknowledged during a public congressional testimony that they agreed with the recommendation of Army General Austin Scott Miller that 2,500 troops should be left in the country, though they denied to detail exactly what they advised Biden to do directly. So interesting little interesting moment here it really is and i feel like i know this is like always my comparison and i've got to find a new thing maybe i need to just watch a little more tv which probably won't happen ever but we can we can hope and i just feel like everything is a real housewives reunion like you said this no i said that like sound effects included this is the political version of that yet again like here we are okay this quote from General McKenzie, like I feel like really puts like the bow on the situation because he goes, I won't share my personal recommendation to the president, but it will give you my honest opinion. And my honest opinion view shape my recommendation. Like what type of jabroni is that? I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. And I also recommended earlier in the fall of 2020 that we maintain 4,500 at the time. Those are my personal views. McKenzie told the Senate Armed Services Committee on Tuesday after questioning from Senator James Inhofe from Oklahoma, which is the panel's top Republican. And he said that his view, the removal of the troops would lead to the collapse of the Afghan government. So Millie stated that it was his view that they should leave at least 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, as we know. And asked whether Miller discussed his recommendation with Biden. McKenzie told lawmakers he believed his opinion was, quote, well heard. Um, was it though? Was it? Was it though? Yeah. Was it though? Was Maybe. It though? Okay. Like, did Biden not have his hearing aids then that day? Perhaps. You know, Very, one yep, one has to wonder. Be. All right, but like, regardless of that, Michigas, some more quotes to kind of throw into the mix here because I just feel like this is like the real context of it, the more than anything. So basically, to give you like the rundown of this little quote situation, we're going to tell you is ABC's George Stephanopoulos interviewed good old biden and this is sort of what went down he asked your military advisors did not tell you no we should just keep 2500 troops it's been a stable situation for the last several years we can do that we can continue to do that question mark and biden in that interview replied no no one said that to me that i can recall which just makes us all be like it's a big he said she said moment mm -hmm. back to this you know real housewives situation because then on the flip the literal flip and his first congressional testimony ever general milley said 
that the 20-year war was a strategic failure, and that he believes the U.S. should have kept several thousand troops in the country to prevent the Taliban takeover that happened faster than forecasted. He refused to say what advice he gave President Joe Biden last spring when Biden was considering whether to keep any troops in Afghanistan, but he did tell the Senate Armed Services Committee that it was his personal opinion that at least 2,500 were needed to guard against the collapse of this situation. So I just, again, he said, she said, she said, he said. I mean, there's no she's in this situation, but... Regardless, the he said, he said. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know. If there was, I'm sure it'd be a different situation. Oh, well, yeah, that's. That's a fact. Fact. But yeah, interesting. I mean, this just continues to kind of put some heat under President Biden's ass because he has been under fire for a multitude of issues, be Mm -hmm. it the Haiti situation, the Afghanistan situation. There's just. His, you know, his approval rating is not doing too hot right now. So this is just kind of another probably shot to the heart of the Biden administration and trying to just continuing to try to recover from these these fumbles. And um, it is football season. So it is. It definitely is. So we'll see, you know, if the Biden administration recovers, they definitely need to step it the fuck up. I'm going to be honest. But um, amen. Yeah. Yeah, those are our top stories of this week, and that is our episode. So definitely go check out the event link in our episode description and try and make it. We want to see you guys. We want to meet you guys, and we want to drink with you guys. Said it again. That might be the new slogan for the event. So um, and bring your friends. Like, yeah, like you're like, oh my god, I'm gonna go out. Bring a date. Yeah, bring a date. Bring a date. We'll let you know if he's worthy mm-hmm. or she's worthy mm-hmm. or they're worthy. Yeah, exactly. And we should also mention this. Guys, like, if you love Prima, Prima's also going to be at the event. Like, oh, yeah. That's. There'll be goodies. Yeah. So you don't want to miss mm-hmm. it. You don't want to miss There'll it. There'll be a lot of fun, fun surprises um, at this event. So don't miss it. Including our outfits. I still need to find one. So thank you for reminding me. You're welcome. Can't wait to go blow some more money on <laughs> online shopping. All right, that is our episode this week. Thank you for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, follow us on all social media. And we will be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.